Hello, it's Tuesday 27th of June. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will be discussing all things super apps across the region with our guest, Brett Henry. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we're delighted to welcome back Jakarta-based Brett Henry, who is president and director of MG Group, a B2B hospitality marketplace. Our discussion today will focus around Brett's recent presentation at the Arrival Conference in Bangkok, which was entitled The Power of Super Apps in Travel. So Brett, great to welcome you back to the Southeast Asia Travel Show. How are you doing today? And where are you right now? Hey, I'm in Jakarta and great to be back. I, I, I remain a most loyal follower of uh, Hannah and Gary and the Southeast Asia Travel Show. So it's great to be, to be back on a show that I listen to weekly. That's very kind, Brett. You always say the nicest thing. So we're going to talk today about super apps and what they mean for travel, what they might mean in future. But before we get into that stuff, Brett, let's talk a little bit about MG Group's first half year of 2023. Such an important year for travel this year. Um, when the three of us spoke last time, which I think was late December 2022, so six months ago, you were pretty upbeat about 2023. So how has it panned out so far for MG? Uh, good news and bad news with 2023 year to date. I mean, the good news uh, would be for MG, we're, we're just really outperforming even what I had expected when I last talked to you. So I remain super optimistic about uh, MG's position in the marketplace and our ability to continue to grow. If you looked across some of our uh, key markets versus 2019, which more and more I think people aren't sure 2019 is the right benchmark, but it's still the one that we're using. You know, we're up in Indonesia versus 2019 by 53% year to date. Uh, Singapore, 20%. Malaysia, a bit softer, but still up. Uh, almost 7% versus 2019. Um, and similar statistics across the other Southeast Asian markets. The bad news is that I think Southeast Asia as a whole um, hasn't met you know, my prediction, and Indonesia in particular, of being you know, up around 110% versus 2019. I think across the board, we're still trailing um, uh, well behind 2019 in most cities. Um, and primarily due to uh, two factors in our view. One is the, the both lack of capacity as well as high airfares that are out there. So I know you guys share a lot of data on where we're at in recovery in terms of uh, airline, you know, available airline seats. Um, and I think across the region, we're still definitely in, in international well down um, and in some of the markets domestically uh, still down. The second factor is uh, uh, China opening has really uh, not come through the way we anticipated. So we thought in the first half of 2023, China would really begin to travel in force. And we're only starting to see that uh, come to bear now. Those are, those are interesting insights. Brett, just to go back to what you were talking about in terms of the, um, the percentage figures against 2019, is that booking revenue or is that booking volume? Uh, this is on a TTV basis. And so what have been, you know, so you're saying it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. What have really been the, the standout factors, you know, for those, those destinations that have been growing, Indonesia, Singapore, um, 
Well, what's been driving that, do you think? I think uh, both those destinations on an overall basis are, are you know, particularly a bit behind uh, where they hope to be in 2023. Um, recently, Bali, uh, you know, really happy about their progress, but still feeling like they're trailing well behind where they were in 2019, both on the domestic front in terms of arrivals as well as international. Uh, for, for MG, I, I think it's just been uh, a combination of two factors. One is, you know, we built and launched a brand new uh, B2B specific platform during the pandemic, and we weren't sure if it was going to work because when we launched it, the pandemic was on. Um, but it has been a, a really, really strong force to help us grow the business. And we've been adding uh, more and more direct hotel connections to global brands, um, as well as to more and more hotel channel managers. So the, the platform has really been the key enabler for us um, in terms of growth in 2019 versus 2023. And so looking at the second half of the year, Brett, you know, what are your objectives? You know, what, what are the, what's the company looking to do across the next year and what's, what's the, across the next six months and what's the outlook? I think for all, all travel brands, the rest of 2023 will continue to be positive. So there's a lot of reasons to be excited about the rest of the year. So although airline capacity is far behind where we were um, and we, we wish it would return next month, um, which won't happen, but it will continue to get better and better month on month. So I think, you know, the fact that flights are well behind 2019 levels uh, is is uh, a negative, but it's also a positive in terms of future opportunity. So um, undoubtedly, with the current level of airfares, airlines as possible will continue to add back capacity. Um, for number one, overall, two. Uh, China will will continue to improve you know, its status as uh, an international inbound market for global markets as well as for Southeast Asia, which more or less it was the number one inbound market for every market in Southeast Asia pre-pandemic. In a lot of the kind of consumer research you see in China, a lot of the Southeast Asian destinations, uh, Thailand, Thailand in particular, show up as kind of one of the first places they want to travel to when they travel internationally. Um, so I think we can expect a lot of goodness as uh, overall airline capacity improves. Second, I think the corporate travel market um, is still, you know, somewhat undefined what it looks like post-pandemic, but it continues to pick up, you know, with uh, particularly with events um, just being booked out at many of the uh, key key destinations in the region. Um, so I think corporate travel and in particular mice and events will continue to boom through the second half of the 2023. Um, so I think th those are some of the, the key reasons why we can be excited and sure that there's more growth ahead for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you, you, you summed up the, all those challenges right around the air capacity and China coming back. And like you said, it's holding it back now, but it also means that there's still a lot more that could come. So um, I'm loving the optimism you have for the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really interested in, in views from you two because uh, you know you're you are two of the only people who are looking critically at Southeast Asia on a consistent basis. You know, wh what's your view for uh, the return of capacity in the second half of 2023 across the region? I share most of um, pretty much all of the sentiments that you said, Brett, in terms of the challenges and opportunities ahead. I agree with you that the Chinese recovery has been slower than perhaps was anticipated although it has taken a long time for the Chinese travel industry and the infrastructure to rebuild and for also demand and confidence to rebuild. 
That does seem to be happening. I was in Bangkok last weekend. You guys were in Bangkok a couple of weeks ago. And I noticed a lot of Chinese tourists in Bangkok this week, a very young demographic as well, young couples, young groups of friends. You know, you saw those lines outside the luxury um, boutiques, which you haven't seen for two or three years. So the Chinese travel uh, uh, recovery is happening. At what speed we'll see over the second half of the year, I'm not entirely convinced. I think there, we are going to be a little bit of a shortfall on what some people were anticipating at the beginning of the year. In terms of regional markets, you know, I think this goes back to what we were all three of us saying uh, six months ago, is that some markets are going to recover faster than others, and that's going to continue through uh, 2023. The high airfares is certainly the, the biggest factor. Uh, you, took, you speak to anybody in the industry, they will tell you exactly the same. And most people in the aviation industry will also say that at the moment it's very uncertain about whether those prices are going to moderate. Some of them will, perhaps in the intra-regional uh, space, we'll see shorter, shorter haul flights uh, maybe coming down a little bit in cost, but they'll still be more expensive than they were in 2019. Longer haul, I don't really see that we're going to see much of a moderation at all. And that's going to impact, you know, that is going to impact volumes. One thing that the, the travel industry tends to do, the airline industry especially, is tend to look at capacity recovery, the air capacity uh, between destinations. But we need to look a little, drill down a little bit more. I don't think enough is being done on actual yields and how full those planes actually are. You know, we may be at the end of the year where some airlines and some destinations are back near parity on capacity compared to 2019, but that doesn't mean those planes are full. And that's obviously going to uh, impact hotel bookings and in-destination spend. I have a great degree of confidence in the rapaciousness of airlines. And as the airfares are so high, they just won't be able to control themselves around wanting to add a little bit more capacity to make a little bit more of this great high margin, high airfare uh, uh, business. Um, so as pr prices will not remain high, so I'm quite confident in that, that they will continue to add capacity. Even if they say they don't want to, to keep prices high, they will because they'll want more of that high revenue uh, business. Um, and as all of them jump in to do that, inevitably uh, that will bring prices down. So I, I have great belief in the greed um, and desire for uh, more, more revenue, more profit will, will in due course bring prices to more reasonable levels. I love that. Yeah, put it down to the greediness of airlines. But yeah, I mean, I think one other factor that comes into play for the region right now, as well as around currency, um, so for Malaysia, Malaysian ringgit is really uh, depreciating right now. I think Thai baht has also come down um, as well versus the USD. And of course, for those airlines that are, have a lot of their costs in USD, then that's going to impact their ability to be able to um, to lower those those prices as well. But yeah, ultimately, I they can't they can't stay as high as they are, and there is still those secondary tertiary destinations that need to be connected to one another and. As that demand builds, I'm sure, as you say, Brett, those airlines are going to add it back on. Yeah, and I guess the other one as well is is regulation. You know, the airline prices are high, but the cost of travel is going to go up. You know, Thailand is still talking about imposing a tourism tax. Uh, the same is happening in, in Indonesia right now. Um, you know, the cost of travel officially is going to cost more over the next six months, the next year for sure. Uh, and that just adds on to the to the burden for travelers. Hmm. So let's switch gears a bit. And um, Brett, I bumped into you at the arrival conference in Bangkok a couple of weeks ago, and you gave this um, really great talk all around super apps. And um, one, one of the, the phrases that I came around, I, I came away thinking was what you were saying, if you call yourself a super app, 
you're probably not a super app, which is um, super catchy. Um, so, you know, why are super apps just so important? I think if, we're, if you're listening in Southeast Asia, you probably know why, and you're probably using them on a daily basis. But we've got quite a lot of listeners outside of Southeast Asia. So for those who are outside of the Southeast Asian region, Brett, what is a super app? Yeah, thanks, Hada. That, that event was uh, the Arrival event, uh, Arrival Activate. Um, really, really great event. Uh, highly recommend that to anyone listening for next year. Both the quality of the content as well as the speakers, which Hannah was one of those, uh, was off the charts. So one of my favorite events of the year now, and I look forward to that going forward. Um, so Super Apps was my topic, um, and we, we talked about a couple things. One was, you know, what is a Super Apps? That'll, that'll address your question. Um, and you know the most prominent uh, brands known as super apps in Southeast Asia are uh, companies like Grab and Gojek. Um, globally, it would you would add in companies uh, like uh, uh, WeChat or Meituan. Um, so these are are typically companies um, that have tremendous scale, so hundreds of millions of users. Um, and and I've worked on this topic. Uh, from a research perspective with Kay Shibata for several years, and we came up with a, a, a way to define, you know, who is a super app and who is not. I mean, it's basically that companies take some base element that has tremendous scale uh, uh, capacity. So something like ride hailing or something like payment um, that, you know, many, many consumers are using. Um, and uh, they add the the element of persistence. So it has to be has huge scale, uh, but it's also something that has persistence, which means you use it uh, every day or ideally multiple times per day. So ride hailing, you may use to uh, back and forth to work, or if you went to dinner, you might be using it two, three, four times a day. Uh, other applications that have that scale plus persistence would be things like messaging. So messaging is something that you're using multiple times per day. So you're going back to the app again and again and again. Uh, payments is another category. Um, so those are, are general categories that, that companies build out huge scale businesses. Once they have that huge scale in a single base element, they expand that and try to go into different horizontals, leveraging that huge scale audience that they have, uh, visiting their app multiple times per day. So that's kind of how we define uh, someone who is a super app. You have this base element with hundreds of millions of users in scale. Um, and it has the, the characteristic of being persistent, which means the users use it multiple times per day. So what isn't a super app then? <laughs> it's become the new black. I think we called it that in my presentation. So everybody wants to be a super app because it sounds cool. Um, and you had lots of companies in Southeast Asia in the travel space uh, talking about um, how they are super apps. Um, so during the pandemic, um, companies like uh, Traveloka, looking for new revenue opportunities, rightfully so, um, went and tried to enter different spaces that have that characteristic of scale and persistence, like ride hailing or food delivery, similar with AirAsia. Uh, but as we come out of the uh, pandemic, uh, more and more of those initiatives are being pulled back um, and more and more of a focus just on the core business of travel for uh, Traveloka and AirAsia. So, so just being a big company in a space doesn't make you a super app. The, the element of persistence or they're going to use your app multiple times per day um, is a key qualifier. And 
we just had the observation as you look through uh, kind of earnings results for public companies that are super apps. The companies that are super apps never actually call themselves that. And the companies who typically use it either as a top line or as, an, as a tagline um, saying that they are a super app typically are not. So here's a question for you, Brett. You mentioned there Kay Shibata, and he and I were at a conference in Phuket about a month ago. We were both speaking there, and we did a roundtable. And one of the questions we got, because Kay did a, a presentation about super apps, and one of the questions we got, and I've done a lot of work at, around super apps in China, and the question I always get is, why do you have super apps in Asia, but they don't exist around the rest of the world? I think there's, there's a couple reasons, reasons for that. Um, uh, one one that may not be immediately obvious would be uh, data privacy. So I think Asian consumers are generally comfortable giving up data and having companies use their data to personalize the experience. Um, and this is a key element of, of super apps. They, they use consumer data to drive the experience. The second element, um, which is just kind of a function of is my personal view of Western, Western technology companies approach, um, is basically is uh, very scale uh, and global focused, where super apps by their nature are hyper local. Um, so you have to be willing to to do the hand to hand combat on the street, on ground in each market, um, to build out this hyper local local experience. Um, and and that's just not the approach that companies like Google or Uber take. They want to build a platform and then scale it as it is across multiple markets. Um, but if you look at uh, some company who's crossed boundaries like Grab or Gojek, I mean, the Gojek business in Indonesia is very different um, in the consumer from a consumer experience point of view on the ground in Singapore versus Indonesia. And the number of relationships that are needed with you know local merchants, with uh, the Gojek drivers, these kind of one-by-one um, localized approaches um, is just not natural for Western tech companies. And I think during arrival, because somebody asked you quite a similar question, it's also around payments, isn't it? Yeah, that's part of hyper-localizing the experience, right? So, so finding elements that are persistent and integrating payment uh, options most of the super apps here would count digital currency as uh, maybe even all of the super apps would count some form of digital currency as a part of their offering. Yeah, I think that's fair to say that most, well, pretty much all of the super apps and other companies that are promoting themselves as super travel apps or that kind of thing have some kind of fintech component. They have to develop that to be able to, to compete. So how were super apps developing pre-pandemic then? And do you think that COVID has kind of accelerated their usage by consumers? I think a good place to start is just to fly by and look at what each company is doing today. Um, and I, I can comment on as it, is it changing or not uh, pre-post-pandemic. <clears throat> because when I talk to a lot of people about super apps, they're like, yeah, but no one's really doing anything in travel in the super app space. So why do I care? But actually, all of them are doing something. Um, and Gary could speak best to China, but maybe I can just focus on what I see happening in Southeast Asia. So, you know, one of, we can start with Grab. Grab's a, a, a large super app, uh, one of the most successful in terms of crossing multiple geographies. So in, in uh, generally all of the Southeast Asian markets, they have uh, a reasonable presence. 
um, monthly transacting users, somewhere around 33 million. Um, and if you looked at kind of registered users, it would be in the hundreds of millions. Um, they are in travel already, uh, but their travel strategy is basically hands off. They have an affiliate program, is what I would call it, uh, with Booking.com uh, and Agoda for hotels um, and with Kluke for in-market experiences. But basically, when you when you arrive at the Grab site for travel, it would just refer you out, um, you know, punch you out to something within the Grab app, but it's going to uh, the UI and branding of Agoda, Booking, and Kluke. Um, so I don't think they're really committed yet to the travel space. Um, they just uh, build some relationships with some travel leaders. You know, if you were wondering, should you participate in Grab's super app offering? If your property is listed on Agoda or Booking or your experience is listed on Kluke, you're covered, right? So no action really needed as long as you're in those channels. Uh, next would be Gojek and Tokopedia, now called GoTo. Um, more than 100 million active users um, and just transacting a huge volume. I think in 2022, their GMV was around 41 billion. Uh, their travel strategy is very different. They want to build and own their own travel offering. Um, in the domestic airspace, um, I would already consider them a top five uh, player in terms of domestic air distribution. Um, so quite a serious offering in the airspace. Um, in the hotel space, they have not yet built their own, but I believe it's their intent. They're currently partnering with Booking.com for their hotel offering, uh, but I definitely expect them to continue to build uh, on direct relationships there over time. And in the experiences space, they're already trying to sign up sellers and get experiences on the platform and beginning to transact those. So I think if you are... Um, in, in Southeast Asia travel and you are targeting Indonesian uh, consumers, you definitely should be monitoring and taking a look at what's happening in the travel marketplace uh, for uh, Gojek and Tokopedia. Uh, next would be not, not Southeast Asia specific, but just what I want to mention because there's there's such a giant, uh, which is Meituan. I had the opportunity to meet with some of the Meituan team here in uh, Jakarta uh, about two months ago. I'm talking about what they're doing in travel. Um, and this is just, uh, it's an amazing story as an organization. So they started out in restaurant reviews uh, or discount kind of group deals like a Groupon type clone. Um, if you're looking at this from a North American context, I um, mean, just built out different categories, added hotel bookings in around 2013. Um, in, in 2021, they did 477 million room nights. Um, and uh, 14 billion food delivery transactions. So the scale of this business is just staggering. They are the largest hotel player in China, bigger than C-Trip, um, with a real focus on domestic um, in their life to date. But certainly you can expect them to uh, leverage that into international contexts in the future. But if you're targeting Chinese travelers, certainly that makes sense that it would be a channel that you would be monitoring and paying attention to. Their strategy is also to build their own travel offerings. So they build direct relationships with uh, brands and, and content providers um, in order to, to build out travel as a category. So definitely a, a really, really important one to watch. And the last one um, I'll talk about in Southeast Asia is Shopee. We could debate whether or not it's a super app. Some people do debate it with me. Um, it's not one that intuitively occurs to people as a super app, but I think the fact that they um, have tremendous scale around 343 million monthly users. 
and they have their own digital currency um, that they push really hard. Um, certainly a meaningful digital currency in uh, Indonesia, uh, maybe a top three to four digital currency in some other Southeast Asian markets uh, like Thailand. Um, so I, I think this qualifies them to at least be considered uh, as a potential super app, if not already a super app. And they are also very focused on travel, um, building their own uh, travel offering as a category. Um, they're already doing really great volume in, in market experiences. Um, I gave an example of uh, a friend of mine in skydiving who uh, was leveraging uh, Shopee as a primary distribution channel to target domestic Thai travelers during the pandemic. Um, showed some examples of just one product category he was selling. Um, and during the pandemic, uh, you can just do the math, number of units bought versus the price. I think it was around 300,000 US dollars in sales. Um, so to think that these aren't meaningful uh, channels is uh, would, would be a, a developing emerging channel that you're missing. That's a great summary, Brett. I totally agree with you. And I think the interesting thing there is, is looking at what you said in terms of who calls themselves a super app and who doesn't call themselves a super app. The ones that you've mentioned, obviously, Gojek, Meituan, WeChat, Grab, Shopee. These are brands that entered the travel space from the consumer space. They were either involved, as you say, in restaurants, in group, in group buying, e-commerce, those kinds of things. That's where they gained their consumer base and that's how they built uh, their travel platforms. But we're now going to talk about two other brands. Uh, we'll come to TikTok in a moment, but I want to talk to you firstly about Air Asia, which during the pandemic specifically marketed itself as a super app. Now, we know that Air Asia had previously uh, a relationship with an OTA, a, a big global OTA, uh, ended that relationship and has tried to go on its own, tried to develop its own super app. Uh, what's your views about Air Asia as a super app? AirAsia is a customer, and I love AirAsia as a brand. In, in fact, many of the cultural elements at MG, I tried to model after AirAsia culture. Um, so let me preface saying I'm a huge AirAsia fan, um, love their business, um, and admire them. In terms of them being a super app, um, you know, not there yet. I think they, they would struggle to meet the scale uh, metric um, compared to the other companies we're calling super apps. Um, in terms of you know monthly active users on the platform. Second, uh, the persistence just isn't isn't there yet. Um, I, although they they put out initiatives to focus on categories like food delivery, or package delivery, or ride hailing, um, um, they just haven't built the scale in those categories to qualify for either scale or persistence in my mind. On AirAsia too, I, I do believe they have articulated formally and publicly, you know, this intent to focus more back on only the travel categories. Correct? Malaysia was kind of no, no. Uh, AirAsia, Malaysia was really the key market where they were building out a lot of these uh, uh, different horizontals. I think they've recently kind of pulled back some of that and just decided to really focus on uh, travel as the core business. Correct? It looks that way. Yeah, I mean. I mean, in Malaysia, even for the food delivery, they've scaled back. They team up with Food Panda now. And, yeah, I mean, you have um, to think about it. These, these companies, uh, you know, C Group or Go To, they have tremendous scale, and they've all been losing tremendous amounts of money as they compete in the space. So, if you want to enter that ride hailing or food delivery space, you're competing against you know giants who have been willing to um, uh, invest for the long term. So, it, it, it is a 
is a space where if you want to come in and compete, you better have, you better be willing to burn lots of capital. Although those two companies also are getting really serious about you know driving profitability into those businesses at the moment. Yeah, that, I mean that's a really important point. You referenced Grab, which is one of the most aggressive um, platform expanding brands. Uh, it went public. It's raised so much funding, but it's not made a profit yet. It hasn't broken even yet. And, you know, speculation about whether it will actually break even uh, in 2023. So, as you said, burning cash is uh, is one of the defining parts of being a super app in this region, I guess. So I think this makes it tough for traditional travel brands to go and compete in those spaces, right? You got to have like almost unlimited access to capital and investors who are willing to uh, build for, you know, with the, with the 10 year horizon. Although that's more recently changed as all, all of those guys focus more and more on driving to profitability. So back to TikTok then, is that going to be the next super app? It's a great one to debate uh, if you're into esoteric debates, but is, is not. But I, I think it definitely is. Um, um, it meets, it definitely meets the persistence and scale uh, defining characteristics, right? The scale is mind boggling. Um, and, and persistence, you know, I think I saw some stats around 97 minutes per day for the average Indonesian user. It's just, it's just, uh, disturbing actually. Um, so I think Southeast Asia is one of their biggest markets already. Um, and Indonesia, obviously the largest in that, the last number I saw was around 130 million active users daily in Indonesia and I don't know, 300 million or so in Southeast Asia. Um, so, so scale is there, persistence is there, and their intent to own travel is there. So they already have uh, many, many sellers setting up uh, shops and using a combination of either just um, uh, content that drives people to transactions or live streams that drive people to, tra- tra- to transactions with very attractive distribution economics. I think when you initially sign up, they're offering uh, merchants somewhere around 1.8% uh, for the first 90 days. After that, 5%, but comparing 5% to uh, what you're seeing in many of the traditional travel distribution channels, it's great economics could be, you know, 100 to 200% uh, lower than what they're paying for uh, other online channels today. So watch this space then, I think. (laughs) Yes, for us, some of our, some of our post-pandemic, some of our larger uh, customers in Indonesia that, you know, didn't exist pre-pandemic. Um, are now TikTok sellers. Uh, so not not in top five, but definitely in top 20, there are TikTok sellers and that is their that is their only channel um, and they're driving, you know, market leading volumes um, uh, across those businesses. So it's not uh, something to watch. It's something that you need to be participating in. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the what you said there, I, I mean, I agree with all that you said, but the statement of ten, intent is very, very clear with TikTok. You know, it said it wants to be, it wants to set up uh, basically an e-commerce function. It wants to really push social commerce, which is very, very big in China. And it has these these huge ambitions to partner with travel brands uh, to give them a, a social commerce uh, selling platform. And the interesting thing, I think, also is in China, TikTok's parent company, Douyin, um, has recently launched a hotel booking interface, a direct hotel booking interface. So scary, so scary. So Brett, these apps, obviously, they bring a lot of opportunities for tourism players, but also some challenges for those kind of established ones. And we saw a few weeks ago, uh, Department of Tourism in the Philippines getting into hot water because they were going to try and team up with Grab to do some kind of tour guiding around. And of course, the tour guides weren't happy with that. The The, the, the transport companies weren't happy with that either. Um, 
do you see any other challenges that are, are going to come up around regulation? You guys are probably better better set to speak on on that topic than me. I, I do think that you know, these types of conflicts are natural when you have disruptive players, you know, entering industries or markets. So I think we can expect more of that, uh, both between competitors as well as with governments, um, as these companies come and challenge the some of the traditional incumbents. Yeah, I would agree. I think disruption disruption is now the name of the game across the travel sector. Technologies are changing so fast, intelligent technologies especially. We're going to see much more disruption, not just from super apps, not just from traditional travel companies, but all sorts of players, all comers we'll, we'll see over the next couple of years. Which, which takes me to a question I wanted to ask you, Brett. I've looked through the... I mean, Hannah was there for your presentation. I've looked through the slides. I'm just looking forward a little bit. If, if you were giving that presentation in 12 months' time, how do you foresee it might be slightly different? I think the sense of urgency. So in that presentation, I talked for each of the players around, you know, what action should the arrival attendees be taking? And in most cases, it's already, you know, assess the platform and begin leveraging it. I think that the sense of urgency around, you know, moving beyond assessing and make sure that in some way you are leveraging that platform um, becomes more and more important. Uh, over the next 6, 12, uh, 24 months. So it is is very difficult to imagine that as big as the travel horizontal is, that these entities will not in due course, you know, have teams focused on monetizing their scale in the travel category. So it's almost a certainty. And you're definitely seeing that from leading super app market China, as you mentioned, uh, with them building out um, that, you know, direct hotel booking capability. Um, and so if you're, I think I gave three, three kind of recommendations at the end of the arrival uh, uh, session, which is one is, you know, if you're targeting travelers that are in any of the super app markets today, you know, if you're interested in, you know, Indonesian travelers, Singaporean travelers, uh, Vietnamese travelers, uh, Thailand travelers, you, you, you should already be, you know, participating in these platforms or mainland China travelers who isn't looking to attract them. So it, is really, it would really be inexcusable that you wouldn't already be engaging, learning about, I'm trying to figure out how as a travel brand or travel intermediary or travel tech player, you can leverage these uh, platforms. So first of all, if you're tra targeting you know, travelers in any of these markets, you should be engaged already around the topic. Second is you know, for travel sellers, the economics are just really solid and hard to imagine those are going to uh, change in the next, in the medium term. So this you know, 1.8 to 5% commission uh, seems to be the norm across most of the platforms. Um, and this is just really attractive compared to traditional travel agency channel commission rates. Um, so I think that's a really, really good reason to go and participate and uh, push the growth of these channels. And lastly, if you're a, a smaller travel seller looking to participate in these markets, the fact that all these super apps give you access to local market specific payment options so across Southeast Asia, the preferred payment option uh, for for consumers in different countries just varies wildly. Um, and instantly, when you're distributing across these platforms, you're getting access to all of those local market-specific payment options for you know near zero cost. So I think these are three great reasons why you should be out there leveraging these platforms today. Absolutely. I think that was a, a, a great round off to the end of the podcast so thank you so much brett for for coming on and it's always great to uh, 
to catch up with you and MG and, and hear your thoughts and this time on a slightly different vertical. But um, yeah, if it calls itself a super app, it's not a super app. Um, I'll go away with that still. Super app is a new black. It's a new black. <laughs> exactly. Gary, Hannah, thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to connecting with you again. Thank you. And that brings us to, to the close for the week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. As always, don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed with Brett or anything we missed out. You could drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism with you soon. See you next time.